Hello, this is Lucas. This is Mac. And this is Matthias. And you're listening to the Common Thread Podcast from the Howard Thurman Center at Boston University. Today we're going to be talking with Smiranda Tolisano, who just got back from France, from Calais, where she where she actually witnessed the end part of the dismantlement of the jungle, which is uh, one of the notorious refugee camps located in France, and that's been a subject of intense debate between the European Union, France, and the UK in terms of migration policy, sovereignty, border control, another raft of important, significant diplomatic issues in Europe. So you want to tell us a little bit about what actually brought you to get in the first place? Um, so the main reason I went to Calais um, at the end of October was uh, for a class project that um, I was working on at Boston University. We're a class of 15 students um, working on a digital solution to help NGOs communicate with unaccompanied minors in the camp of Calais. We were working with one specific NGO, and so my role as a representative of our class was to observe the NGOs functioning on the ground, um, collect information to understand what they needed um, for our application and you know, digital platform to help them communicate securely with the children who were equipped with cell phones by the NGO and um, had data plans that were topped up every month um, by the NGO. So I decided to go there for five days and um, to hopefully help them implement a solution before the closing of the camp and before the miners were dispersed across other facilities in France. So the, the initiative, uh, which we call FMHD, uh, received a grant from the European Commission this year together with Boston University uh, to finance uh, the launch of a digital solutions incubator and hopefully an innovation lab that would um, help students uh, design and launch projects to help with in the case of the refugee crisis. And um, the idea was to start a project in the, in the classroom and hopefully to have it um, develop and come to fruition through the Innovation Lab um, later on this year. Can you tell us a little bit about why Calais specifically? Why, why is Calais the place where, where that's like the nervous, the nervous center of this crisis in France? Um, so there are other refugee camps in France. I think the um, the history. I mean, the history of Calais is is actually you know it goes back to to the early two thousands. So it's not you know it's not just relevant today, and um, and it has been a, a refugee camp or it has had a refugee camp close to the city for for you know over fifteen years now, and um, the reason it became so important in the last few years is because of the influx of refugees from. Um, North Africa and the Middle East um, in the last yeah in the last couple of years, and the camp's proximity with the UK um, add to that Brexit and you know the UK just not being a part of the Schengen zone and you have a whole lot of <laughs> international issues in terms of just legal issues, asylum, um, anything that goes from yeah from registration for family reunification under the Dubs Accords to simply, you know, who's in charge of managing this illegal migration because that's what it's being termed as, is illegal migration, not a, a flow of refugees. And um, and who has jurisdiction over it? Who, you know, who's supposed to be responsible for it? So it's the closest point of departure from, from France over to, to the United Kingdom, uh, which is why it's uh, why it's such a, a point of tension and why it's a, why people are, so many people are concentrated there. And so because of joint passport control on either side, that means that people cannot actually reach the UK without going through passport control and customs in Calais. And so since these people don't actually have the authorization and the documentation required to actually board the mode of whatever mode of transportation they're taking to get to the UK, they cluster in and around Calais and try to find opportunities via train, via boat, uh, via trucks even, to cross the channel, um, which is why specifically Calais is the, the location that, that this is happening. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience, like what, once you got there? I mean, what compelled you to go in the first place? Like, what were, what were the circumstances specifically that compelled you to say, you know what, I need to go now rather than at any other point in time? 
Calais, I mean, the, the situation in France was of personal importance to me because um, I grew up in France, so there was definitely a, a personal emotional attachment to the country and to the situation. And um, But the reason it happened um, more specifically is um, simply the, the closure of the camp, you know, the, the emergency, um, the fact that we were less than one week away of, of the dismantling and we still hadn't implemented our solution. Uh, we were getting just generally very negative feedback from uh, the NGOs we were speaking to on the ground and uh, we were we were scared that after the 25th of October there would be over a thousand unaccompanied minors on their own um, in other camps where they didn't know people, they didn't know the structure, maybe there was no structure we couldn't know, and that they would have no way to reach to the NGO members that they had become friends with, who they trusted, and, and you know, who had been caring for them for months. So this is a this is a product of a political situation, a political decision making. Yeah. Um, so our class, I mean, you know, a lot of people ask me while I was there, you know, why why is a student from America coming here just for five days, and and what you know, what is your goal here, what is your purpose, and and I think part of it was was also just knowledge and and fact finding. It's it's been very difficult to to have access to information about Calais. I feel like we talk a lot about Calais, but there's not a lot coming out from Calais, from the people who were there. Um, and and while I was there, I, I saw how fast things were moving. Um, you, you sort of lose track of time because during the day, time seems to slow down a lot because you're spending time with people and there's no, you know, there's no normal cycle of day like you have in, in your daily life when you have a job and or you go to school. But then... I was I was counting the days and and it just went by so fast because <clears throat> from one day to the next there was uh, there was no place to be no place to live for these people and a lot of them were just you know boarded on buses or or trucks and and shipped to other places so so yeah it was kind of a now or never <laughs> type of right. moment. When was the decision to shut the camp to shut down the camp announced? Um, earlier this year, I mean, the the south uh, portion of the camp was shut down in February. Okay. So by the time I got there in October, it was really the sort of the end of, of you know, I mean, it was its own little town, so it was the end of, of a place. And um, a lot of people had already left. Some people had left and come back to Calais. And uh, most of the NGOs who were there, I mean, some NGOs had left already, um, and others were you know, they were preparing for the after, not not really knowing what the after would be, if people right. would still be on the camp after the dis dismantling, as, as often happens. Um, I mean, we saw that with uh, the end of the camp of Songhet in 2002. People left Songhet, and a lot of them just moved east of the city, and part of it is how the jungle of Kelly started. Right. What you have to know is that on, on the eastern side of the camp, there was a sort of a government facility. It was a fenced in... Um, block of containers, of shipping containers, and they used those containers for registration. There were um, just mechanical doors and you had to scan your palm uh, in order to get in, and so this was only accessible to people who had been pre-registered, um, but the pre-registration was done in a sort of, uh, well, that fits the idea of a jungle, I guess. It was just done, you know, out there in front of the in front of the facility. It was just uh, done by a few volunteers from France Terre d'Asile who were in charge of it. Um, they were heavily understaffed, unfortunately, and um, and there were, you know, if you asked to speak to a government representative, it was, I mean, I didn't manage to speak to anyone because nobody knew anything, and it was always, you know, you had to talk to someone higher up, and or it's Sunday, and people don't come in and work on Sunday. And, you know, so you ran into a lot of issues um, when you wanted to talk to someone higher up who was supposed to be in charge of the organization. Do you want to tell us about what your experience was like upon arrival? Yeah, um, so Calais is in northern France, so it's rainy and humid all the time, and it's cold, and it was only late October, but I can't imagine what um, what it must be like to go through the winter, um, sleeping on the sand in the mud, uh, because from from what I saw, you know, some some of the places were actual houses, I guess they were built with wood and tarps and things like that and they had a ground but most of them were just tents and some of them were built with um, you know branches and bicycle wheels were used to create a structure to the house on top of which people put tarps or uh, some other sort of plastic cover to create uh, uh, a waterproof um, roof 
but um, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, for someone who reads the news and who looks at a lot of doc, who watches a lot of documentaries, who looks at uh, war pictures, it wasn't, um, you know, it was what I expected in a sense. Um, but I think it's always, I think you can't deny how shocking it is to, you know, to enter a place like that that's literally at the end of a road that comes from the city, that comes from a regular French city with bakeries and bars and pubs and normal city life, and that you end up in a place where people live in such destitute conditions. They, you know, they share their food with you. They hand, you know, I was handed an apple and given hot tea or hot coffee everywhere I went, and... Um, and people make do with what they have, but the truth is they're, you know, they're washing their clothes in, in tiny buckets, they have water because volunteers from the city bring fresh water. Bottled water. Sorry? Bottled water. Yeah, they bring, or they bring, you know, so large containers. there's no containers running water, water There's no running water, no. Um, and no, no sewage system whatsoever. No, so there are people who come in and take out the trash, you know, take away and dispose of trash for the refugees, but there is no, yeah, there is no sewage system, a lot of trash is just on the ground even I mean in the tents there's foods and clothes and things and you just step over a bunch of things other times it's just mud and water um, and people try to stay dry and warm by lighting fires um, so that you know you feel like you're camping um, but in the worst conditions possible if you know as if you were in an apocalyptic movie <laughs> and um, and I think what's shocking is to think that this is happening in France today or in the UK, or anywhere in Europe, for that matter, um, and and you know we we pride ourselves for being um, I don't know for being uh, somewhat educated. Yeah, you know we we're supposed to be democracies, and we're supposed to you know uphold our, our bargain of of having signed a bunch of human rights papers. But they you know those those big international agreements they don't matter so much when. When on a day-to-day -day basis you don't have access to food, uh, to toilets, or you have to use porta potties that are never cleaned, probably, and um, and you're you know there's no there's no hygiene, there's no I mean sanitation is De it's deplorable, yeah. yeah I don't have the words for it, um, but um, but people make do and they don't necessarily complain about it. They get frustrated. Um, they get frustrated over not being listened to, over not having, again, access to interpreters when it's needed, over not having access to information. I mean, this whole crisis has been about information. So day one. Day one. Day one, I get there, I rent a car because it's just not convenient to walk. Um, but the refugees, they, they have to walk, they don't have a choice. So a lot of people are on bikes, actually. I'm, I'm driving uh, through the industrial area that, that leads to the camp coming from the port of Calais, the harbor, and um, people are biking, which I didn't expect. Um, and um, and I get to the camp, you you know, you go under a little bridge, everybody parks there, people who come in, journalists, um, volunteers. And um, there's a few, a few CRS, a few police officers who stand in front of a, there's sort of a no man's land before the camp entrance. And, um, you know, they just ask why I'm there, check my ID, I speak French, they let me in. And um, so it is. It is mostly male when you when you walk on camp. So I, you know, I'm alone and I'm I'm dressed as, as much as possible as a guy. <laughs> but you know, people notice and, and they know you're a girl and, and they do look at you. But there's no, you know, somebody comes in and comes and starts talking to me and we just talk about how long he's been there. He's from Sudan. He's 24 years old and you know he just tells me a little bit about him and okay, have a good day. So I walk on camp and the first street or avenue I see is is actually pretty well kept and and you know there are actual houses that are built and and they stand there and and it seems like it's been a functional place that actually people have you know they've established a sort of city life you know there are restaurants and uh, and you can see that there were places where people sold things and there's signs for prices and and I'm sure people bargain as well but um, but everything is empty on that street when I get there, and some of the windows are, they're plastic window panes, but they're broken. Um, people have left food items, gas uh, tanks, everything. There's clothes, there's beds, and I, I don't venture inside because I don't think it's appropriate, and I haven't been invited, and I don't know if anyone is actually there or not. Um, so I keep walking, and um, 
before I meet with the NGO uh, representative I was supposed to meet, because it's hard to, to communicate by phone, actually when you're on the camp there's very little cell reception. There's no service. No, it's really hard to communicate with people and texts and phone calls never reach you and I don't know, it's just <laughs> difficult to be Just to compound an already difficult situation to exactly. start with. Exactly, and so if you do have a smartphone, well, tough luck because you probably can't even use it. <laughs> So, you know, I, I end up venturing and, and I see a, a Sudanese flag, which I actually mistake for a Romanian flag at first because it's blue, yellow, and red. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm half Romanian, so I, you know, um, naively walk towards the flag <laughs> and I end up um, in, the Sudan in a very Sudanese part of camp. Um, and so, you know, these, uh, these young men invite me for, over for tea and so we share tea and they give me an apple and we're all chatting and and one of them actually is um, is leaving his tent because he's going to school so the camp is being dismantled in three days but he's going to school okay, so there's a school in the camp. yes of course there are several schools oh yeah there's, I tell you it's it was a little city of its own for a long time there there were schools there were restaurants there were little um, little shops where you could buy um, just batches of cigarettes that were um, surrounded with aluminum paper um, you know one euro for five cigarettes <laughs> there's gum there's there's a bunch of things I mean people bring in commodities and they sell them and they it's it's functional it's not you know it's not nonsense uh, during the day so are, so yeah so he's going to school <laughs> are the schools being taught by <clears throat> other refugees and migrants or is the French government actually providing teachers or Oh no, oh no it's not. <laughs> no, it's entirely, um, from what I know, it's entirely NGO-based, um, grassroots <laughs> efforts. Uh, no, definitely not brought in by the French government, which is an interesting point, you know, you kind of think they would <laughs> do that, but no, they don't. Um, but um, that, that refugee I spoke with who was going to school, he already spoke bits of French, which was, um, I mean, enough to converse with me in, in decent French, which was amazing. And um, How long had he been there? He'd been there over six months, um, but I, I'm wondering if he'd had, I cannot remember now if he'd already had a background in French or not, um, but he'd certainly been learning for, for several months, and, um, and many people do actually, many people take classes on the camp in French and in English. Most people gravitate towards English because it's easier to learn, because it's, you know, many of them hope for access to the UK, and uh, very few of them actually plan to stay in France. Um, but yeah, and so I, I spent, you know, probably two hours there, um, drinking tea and talking and, uh, actually, uh, a wonderful French woman came over and, uh, they all call her mom or grandma. And so I realized, you know, they all knew her and, um, and they were friendly and she had actually been bringing in supplies and food and water for, for months. You know, she, she was from Calais and, um, she was the only person in her family who to be involved with this. And it was just, you know, she wasn't part of an organization or anything. It was just a personal, individual effort to, to help. And um, and you could tell, you know, she she'd been doing this for a long time. So so she had friends. She had, she told me stories of kids who had made it, who had left, who had gotten asylum in in the UK or in France, and who had come back to visit her years later. And and so now she was still working uh, on her own time to, just to help people out because she thought it was the humane thing to do. Did you see a lot of that? Like, uh, were, were locals, like, uh, mostly trying to help or supportive, or were, was there, like, like kind of some tension there between, like, the locals and the camp and its, like, organizers? So I can't, I didn't conduct a, you know, a survey yeah, poll, yeah. but um, it was interesting. The most information I got was from my, um, my two taxi drivers, actually, who were both locals. And who knew a lot because they drove a lot of people around um, and, and they talked to a lot of people and one of them was actually involved in, in some of the efforts. Um, some people just, I mean, Kelly has been there for, or was there for, for 16 years pretty much. And so people, a lot of people were just accustomed to it and they knew that um, the refugees were there because they had no other choice. They knew that a lot of them were good kids. I mean, I think people who had contact with kids uh, or teenagers were those who were the most inclined to, you know, to to understand, to be compassionate about what was happening, and um, and a lot of them just, you know, yeah, they contributed. Um, I can't. I mean, of course, there's tension as well. Um, I just, I can't. I wasn't surrounded by hostile people, so it was, you know, I had my own bubble, I think, of of um, of peace because I was surrounded by people who were there to help, and I was fortunate enough to meet people just like that.
but I'm sure that if you delve into the topic more with other people in the city, I'm sure you'd get a lot of different opinions. Yeah, the municipal government of Kede has gone back and forth over, I mean, the 10 years plus that this camp has been a, a serious uh, agglomeration of people and a serious political issue as well. It's it, There have been countless political movements, protest movements, uh, informal protests, shutting down the harbor as a protest. Um, so yeah, it's been a municipal political issue for sure. Was the atmosphere like most, like was there a hopeful atmosphere? Was there more of like despair kind of setting in among a lot of these people? I mean, I would find it hard to imagine not feeling despair in a situation like that, you know? Well, well, I, I was mostly surrounded by, by teenagers uh, while I was there, I have to mention that, because I think uh, being with younger people was a very, very different experience than being with adults who'd been there for a longer time, maybe, or who'd left a lot in their home country and who were maybe more blasé than, than the teens would be. Um, there was a certain kind of hopefulness about the teenagers that that really marked me, and um, and I think part of it was was due to the fact that they left horrible conditions of life, that they left their family, and I didn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable asking about their personal history or how they ended up there on their own without a family. But they were kids that were younger than me or close to my age, and and you know, I mean, what else can you do but be hopeful? There is no, it's. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer in the sense that they made it all this way. You know, they, they made it all the way to Calais. They're so close to their goal. And, and I don't think it can be worse than what they've seen or done or, had, you know, had to go through before to get there. You have, you mentioned people from Eritrea. You mentioned people from Sudan. What sort of means of their culture have they brought with them to these camps? A lot of people brought nothing. A lot of people just rely on what's being given to them there. Um, they have... A few personal belongings and and you know if there was I mean any tension that happened on the last day on the days of the dismantling was definitely because people were literally walking around with everything they own um, whether it's cash or you know things they have and that they want to sell for cash um, but um, something in case you didn't expect it was that people were dressed the same way that you and I are dressed you know guys were wearing Nike sneakers and, and hoodies and um, I only happened to see a couple teenage girls, but they were wearing skinny jeans and, and Converse shoes like I am, you know, or just very things that you consider basic or usual um, in the U.S. or, or in France. Um, but I, you know, and actually in terms of cooking as well, in terms of cooking, people definitely cooked like they did at home. So things like the Peace Restaurant or Ashram Kitchen where you could go and get tea or the, the main restaurant where all the volunteers ate, um, for free, by the way, was entirely, you know, it was all cooked like they cooked in Afghanistan or in Sudan. Um, I ate a lot of food from Afghanistan, which was fantastic. And, um, and that's also the other crazy part is you're transported. You're literally somewhere else. You're geographically in France, but culturally and in all senses of the term, you're, you're completely somewhere else. My role there was focused on, on unaccompanied minors uh, because that's the project we're doing in class. It's, you know, what our whole, our whole work has been since, since September and, um, and what the NGO focuses on. So part, you know, part of my time was spent um, at the Baloo Youth Center, which is administered by the Refugee Youth Center, and they were the NGO that I um, tagged along with. And um, this is a group of... Uh, British people. Um, the two guys who started the, um, the NGO are actually young graduates, so they're, you know, this was one of their first um, actions. And um, and so they they had a place that was reserved for teenagers, you know, for, it started as, um, I think, as a place for, for education. It started as a school um, taught by, um, by a guy from Denmark, actually. And uh, everybody else was British. <clears throat> And from, you know, from teaching English, it grew into having uh, a center for boys because there's mostly teenage boys on camp. And then it grew into the refugee youth center so that girls could be welcome as well. And that it would be sort of a safe space dedicated to children, especially those, or, you know, teenagers, especially those who don't have families. Um, not that it was, you know, exclusive. I think any kid could come in. But um, there was a real effort to keep adults who weren't part of the NGO outside of the premises. Um, there was just... A defined entrance and everything else was, you know, they had 
the bathroom and um, just a room to, to play and read and learn and just a bunch of different rooms and and then a sort of um, just space in the middle where people played soccer or you know just hung out so so that was the real point of um, that was the real point of uh, a reunion for for young people on camp. So why keep the adults separate? Why is there a need to have this safe space, as you called it, for these unaccompanied minors? So some of the most atrocious things I've heard about but have not witnessed are um, human trafficking, um, people, especially teenagers, being sold into sex slavery or being sold for organ donation. Within the camp itself? Well, that's what I was told about and warned about when I went in uh, was about people who conduct those kinds of operations. Um, I, you know, as someone who was there for a few days, I can't attest, I mean, I didn't see anything. But, uh, but so a lot of studies and a lot of research is being conducted because a lot of people have gone missing for no reason. And this is partially what our initiative here at BU is, is trying to deal with, is, um, is trying to bridge the gap because this is something that should be handled by governments, and um, I'm not saying it isn't, I'm just saying it's not adequately handled, and that all resources are not dispatched to, to deal with it. So, <clears throat> so the Refugee Youth Center, um, it was, to me it was impressive. Um, it was built around real, you know, real ties between the volunteers and the kids. They knew each other individually, they knew each other, they knew everybody's names, uh, they were all, they were all friends, you know, I mean, obviously the, the volunteers were a sort of, I wouldn't say parental figure, but, you know, they did assume sort of some responsibilities that parents or the government would, because there was no structure to deal with that, and so they provided a safe space, they provided food um, when they were there for lunch, and they provided, you know, just means for education, uh, people to talk to, I think an outlet because I'm sure a lot of people need to talk, or, or don't need to, but need uh, a reassuring presence and company. And, and what I saw was a lot of just, you know, friendship and, and fraternal love and, and just volunteers caring for these kids, as you would hope the government would. And, and that was tremendously lacking. So what I told you earlier was actually my first full day there, but um, my first, you know, my first encounter with the camp was um, in late afternoon the first day. You know, I, I got off the plane and it was the middle of the day, so I just decided to rent the car and go. Um, but it was close to, to sunset, so I didn't want to stay for too long because the volunteers generally leave, unless they live on the camp, which some did for a long time. But those who don't, <clears throat> those who don't they, um, they leave before sunset or at sunset because at night I think the camp is a very different place. Um, and I'll tell you a bit more later about the only time I was there past sunset. Um, but yeah, first, so first time I, you know, I just stepped around camp and I met a bunch of volunteers who I didn't know and who warned me not to, you know, venture too far off on my own. Day one. Day one I couldn't get in touch with, uh, Michael from the Refugee Youth Service who was my point of contact and who I was supposed to meet with. Um, it was, you know, it's also difficult when you haven't been on the camp before and you say I'm in front of the bridge because that's the only big thing you see and you're like, there's a bridge. <laughs> I hope there's no other bridge, <laughs> but that's the one I see. <laughs> so, you know, I had to pick the bridge <laughs> and, um, and I actually bumped into um, a Chinese journalist and his French interpreter and so I tagged along with them for a bit um, because it felt safe and the guy spoke French. <laughs> so, um, so I started exploring the camp a little bit with them, um, but just, you know, we stayed essentially in front of the camp or the first avenue um, and I ended up meeting with Michael pretty fast um, so uh, that was kind of the end of day one you know just I took some pictures around the camp uh, of the fences on the highway uh, people on bikes the CRS taping the paperwork from the prefecture stating um, it was actually a ban on uh, flat flammables and explosives, including gas tanks and cooking oil, which are obviously the basic things people need for heat and food. So um, I was trying to figure out, you know, trying to ask if it was retroactive, but they were policemen taping it, not, you know, government officials, so they had no idea. Um, I spent some time translating that to people who were outside the camp, um, and 
and then soon after I met with Michael so you know we called it a day and and we went into the city and and we talked you know he just told me more about their day-to-day -day operations and what was going on at that point um, day two started with uh, with me exploring the camp on my own for <laughs> a couple hours um, but that's when you know that's when I was offered tea and when I met the the French woman uh, people affectionately called mom or grandma and so I spent you know a couple hours total doing that then Michael met me and um, and you know we started walking around camp pretty fast and um, we went to the refugee I mean the center the blue youth center which was um, organized and, you know, held by the Refugee Youth Service. And there we, um, it was just a lot of, it's always a lot of talking or a lot of um, walking to go meet people and talk about something because, again, communication is really difficult on the camp. So you kind of go from, you know, or I went from being in Boston and texting and emailing, actually, Michael, who was on the camp, and thinking it's fine, we're going to be able to call and everything, and then I get there, and it's actually really difficult to be in touch, you know, so I felt even more disconnected. You know, I was in Caleb, but now I was fully a part of the camp and disconnected from the outside world most of the day. And you just, it's difficult every time you want to say something to someone or you have to transmit information, you have to travel to the other side of camp and come back. So um, I did a lot of following around and um, again, translating. Uh, Michael was getting a bit more information about the dismantling, what was going to happen to the children and he was trying to go over um, sort of the timeline that he had got, gotten from the French prefecture um, as he met with government officials. And so we were just, you know, relaying that information to, to kids. Um, I also stayed with him and saw his work as he distributed cell phones to some of the children. And... Um, oh, that, that, that's actually <coughs> going to be a question, was where, where these kids get the cell phones. So it's, the cell phones are provided by the NGO. Yeah, um, so this particular NGO, I know some other NGOs have been doing that, but um, I'm not sure what their uh, operations have been like. What the Refugee Service was doing was um, handing out cell phones with uh, functional SIM cards that were loaded with data, um, either from the French provider, SFR, or from a British provider. provider. And uh, they were handing them to uh, children they knew and trusted and who, you know, they knew needed a cell phone or would need it soon. Uh, there were two types of cell phones, either an Android smartphone or a brick phone. Uh, I think people were glad to get the smartphones, but they soon found out that they broke much easier than the brick phones did. So, um, you know, having a brick phone that allows you to text and call when you get in trouble, I think, was, you know, was a real advantage for, for these children and teenagers and um, and the idea was just for them you know to to have a means to survive honestly at this point it becomes it's not a luxury item it's it's really about survival um, I think the operation was made possible at this point in time because the camp was close to shut down earlier on I know I think it would have been more difficult for them to hand out more cell phones or to have a larger scale operation because having a cell phone or something valuable instantly made you a prey and one of the issues people ran into, I think, when they handed out cell phones was um, adults or sometimes teenagers selling them to other people because they didn't have the use for it. So what I thought was really clever here is that these were all, you know, again, they were based on interpersonal relationships, on links, on, on trust that the NGO members had built with the teenagers and vice versa. And so there's real, you know, there's a something related to accountability, I guess, and saying, you know, I'm you trust me with your safety and I trust you with the cell phone and I trust that you will use it appropriately and not as a toy or that you won't sell it off for bucks because that's not what we're trying to do here. So yeah, so you know, the, the cell phones were handed out and there was a whole system um, specific to the NGO for how to top up data plans every month and how to stay in touch with the kids. I think that's <laughs> interesting because it really speaks to the fact that you can't just throw money at the situation or throw supplies or throw things at the situation and just say make it get better you actually have to put people on the ground to build that connection and build that sense of trust to actually make these meaningful and meaningful actions happen and this improvement happen yeah and I think that's where you know that's where I was disappointed by the French government is that there was I mean, clearly they're not, they're not hostile people, you know, they're, they're refugees. And, um, and what was sad was that there was no reciprocity, no reciprocity from the French and British government in Kelly. 
and that everything had to come from, yeah, from volunteers who had to figure out for themselves if it was, I guess by trial and error, figure out if it was better to, yeah, hand out cell phones, give monies, give, give supplies. It's, you don't, you don't instinctively know what's going to work and what people need or want, but I think, you know, people had enough experience by the end of the camp to figure out what was needed and what was actually useful for, for different groups, whether it be unaccompanied minors or the few women who were on the camp or adults with families, without families. Day three. Day three, I can split it in two, I guess. Um, first part, I got there a bit too early, so I went ahead on my own and I sort of, you know, by that time I knew where things were more or less. You get accustomed to the, the map of the, plan, of, the, of the camp pretty fast. Um, also, one thing I realized, I had printed out maps from the internet. Completely useless. <laughs> Utterly useless. But, you know, you, you get accustomed to the place. So um, I headed for, uh, for the containers. Uh, we just called them the containers. That was that fenced area um, administered by the government. And, I mean, a lot of people were there already because um, the dismantling was, uh, was, you know, ready to begin or was going to begin the next day. And... Um, so Michael was there that morning, and he spent a lot of time just commuting from one side of the camp to the containers uh, to discuss with the people from France Terre d'Asile who were in charge of the registration for uh, family re reunification. And um, he just he didn't feel comfortable letting the children go in because there was there were just no guarantees. You know there had been there had been issues of police brutality and just altercations with teenagers uh, where, you know, um, the police hadn't been respectful and hadn't, yeah, hadn't been respectful. Well, there was conflict, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that morning was pretty chaotic because it was a lot of, again, gathering information from the containers and going back to where we left the group of children and teenagers and, you know, going back and forth and trying to bring the most up-to-date information. Um, I think one of the big debates uh, that was going on was whether the government could be trusted in dealing with, you know, with the situation and whether they could be trusted with the care um, of these teenagers and kids. I mean, the youngest child was nine years old. He was the only one at that age, but he was there, and um, and people had to, to look after him. Uh, so, so yeah, it was one of the big questions that morning was, you know, do we, you know, we're being told there's there's going to be a registration process and we're being told to come here and wait in line for hours, but is it actually, is it real, you know, and is it, you know, is the government trustworthy? Um, that kind of, you know, I mean, that wasn't solved in my opinion. I don't think it was solved for anyone really because, um, because that's the only structure, that's the only effort the government provided. It was kind of a, it was just one solution or, you know, it was kind of, sign in, register for asylum in France, or, or be deported. And, um, and that would be part of the discussion for the, the last couple of days, and I'm sure after I left as well. Um, what, um, what I did later on was just be at the youth center, um, again with the children. I, you know, I helped with just serving food, you know, basic things, the things that need to be done. Food was being delivered and um, by truck, and so we just did the food service, we were fed as well, and, um, and we just spent time with, with the teenagers. Uh, what had happened the night before is that the, um, the refugee youth center had been burnt down um, by people, so there had been a major fire in the middle of sort of the courtyard where people usually play soccer. Um, some of the sort of the buildings they had had been broken into and completely ransacked. And um, and what was pretty admirable was I mean, what was incredibly, <laughs> incredibly courageous uh, was how the NGO handled it. They were they just had their smiles on, you know, and and they said it's fine. They said okay, people had a party here. They had a bonfire, and we're still gonna play next to the ashes. And so we played soccer all afternoon and whatever. They you know they started painting on the walls inside of the the main building where, where they usually taught classes and hung out and there was a pool table so that was completely deconstructed by uh, some teenager who wanted to see how it functioned inside um, and then people just started painting on the walls and taking their notebooks or whatever they wanted to keep and and a big part of, of that day and the following one was just getting the teenagers accustomed to the idea that the camp was being shut down and you know I heard Michael telling them over and over again in his most reassuring tone that it was going to be fine that they 
you know, they were going to care for them and to make sure that they were, um, they were taken to the right place and that they were taken care of, but that the camp was closing down, that there was no more Belugi Center, um, and that unaccompanied minors or children were definitely getting a different treatment than the adults were in the eyes of the government, and the registration would happen very differently for these two groups. Um, so, so yeah, a lot of that day was just, you know, also keeping adults out of the camp, out of the refugee youth center. A lot of adults were trying to come in. I, honestly, not even for particular purposes. I think a lot of them were just bored and they just, they felt like it was a privileged space. So they were curious and wanted to see what was there and there was nothing left. I mean, I, you know, you literally had to tell them it's all burnt down. You brought somebody burnt it down. So there's nothing for you to take here or, or see. Um, it was, yeah, it was a bit of a, of a sad day in that in that sense. After staying um, at the refugee youth center, we head for uh, the Sudanese and Oromo sides of camp. Uh, we first went to meet a group of five or six Sudanese uh, teenagers, uh, whom the whom the NGO had befriended and had promised to bring cell phones to. And um, and while we were there, we shared, I mean, the other volunteer, the one who was with me, she brought orange juice and chips, and so we all started feasting. Um, it started to rain, so we tried to cover up a little. And uh, we were, <clears throat> she was asking them questions about um, their contacts with the police and with ambulances, medical services, when they've needed assistance uh, for the time they've been in France. And, um, and, you know, she asked them how, you know, how they would use the cell phones if they would primarily, so some of the answers were they would primarily use them to keep in touch with family, uh, contact people from the NGO and stay in touch among themselves. And oftentimes uh, there was a bit of reluctance to get in touch with French police, not so much because they, would, they were perceived as violent or, or you know, um, antagonistic, but more so because they were seen as passive and not necessarily ready to take action to, to help out when it was needed. Um, and, and while we were talking, when, you know, just life happens and, and people people do their own thing next to you, some of us were talking and one of the boys began to wash his hands and, and his feet in a little just container that he had. And then he extended um, kind of carpet that he had uh, to start his prayer. And so he started praying right next to us, you know, because there's not a lot of space for privacy and, and we were just outside sitting at a table and so he did his prayer and then he came back and joined the conversation about the cell phones and, and the situation on the camp um, and, and you know part of our conversation again turned uh, or was about the topic of, of children and, and being unaccompanied minors some of the Sudanese men who were with this group were adults and they were one of them was given a cell phone and he was design, designated as the adults to be in charge of this group of teenagers and um, so, so you can see that the NGO's work is really critical here to enable people to stay in touch and, and to have some sort of familial or care structure when there is none and, and when they risk being separated the next day because of the camp's dismantling. So we spent some time there and then we moved on. We, uh, we walked further into the, the camp to go see the Oromo community. And so this is a, on the camp they were pretty separated from from other refugees, they have their uh, their own school, their own Oromo school to teach English and French, and um, and they lived as a pretty independent community, from what I could tell. Um, there, when we first arrived, there was a Danish uh, journalist filmmaker who was uh, filming some of the children and asking them questions, and um, and the, the the first reaction of the volunteer I was with was to you know, engage with him and ask the, the kids if they were okay with him filming them, if they had agreed to it, if they were all right testifying, and if they realized that this would go on national Danish television, that it was going to be broadcast, that it would probably end up online. And one of the, one of the issues here is that because the Oromo community already face a lot of backlash in Eritrea and that there are racial tensions on the camp, um, I think the volunteer was concerned with them attracting too much attention to them and, you know, being in, put in unnecessarily risky situations because they testify and, and talk about the situation. So, um, you know, we, we let the, the journalist do his work, but there was a, a long conversation between him and the volunteer just to, and the children, just to make sure that they understood what being filmed meant. 
And I think it's one of the big um, problematics when you work in this kind of environment as a journalist or, or what I witnessed um, as an observer was uh, some journalists were, were met without a problem, you know, they were uh, they were welcomed and others faced a bit more um, a bit more opposition, both from refugees and especially from NGOs, because there is a legitimate concern for people's security and especially for unaccompanied minors, there are no adults to, you know, sign a waiver form or there's nothing like that. And and again, that's one of the aspects of the jungle or of the refugee crisis situation where there is no uh, respect of certain fundamental human rights that we abide by in everyday life and society. And because um, just because there's a lack of, of the rule of law in, in this situation, um, you know, you tend to forget or people tend to forget um, to function by the rules they normally follow. Um, after that, we stuck around, and she wanted to. The volunteer wanted to have a conversation with some of the Oromo leaders. Uh, it's been, if from what I understood, uh, one of the one of the difficulties there was to have to, you know to elect a leader. Uh, very few Oromo people were actually fluent in English or French, and some of the stories we heard while we were there. Um, there's a lot of distress from the Oromo community. A lot of um, a lot of frustration, I think, because they felt that they hadn't been adequately represented uh, when talks were happening with the prefecture and the local government about registration and family reunification. They felt that fewer children from the Oromo community had been uh, given a chance to go to England and to apply for asylum, whereas according to them, according to the leader we spoke to, more Eritrean ch children were registered every day than Oromo children were. Um, so besides representation and uh, also not having a translator, uh, the Oromo were, you know, were frustrated because there was no translator who spoke their language and English and could be an intermediary uh, with the authorities. Um, they, the leader also um, spoke about several instances of, of violence, of police violence, and then refugee violence, you know, some Oromo uh, men having their phone and several hundred euros stolen from them by refugees from other um, other ethnicities and um, and while while we were there he had actually just given a speech to, to all the Oromo people who were who were on camp and told them about the dismantling and how it was going to happen and their options for registration um, he told us and showed us that the Oromo school had been destroyed inside the building it was you know in a sort of little container or little uh, wooden house and everything was just trashed. He said that the police had come in one day and had disrupted an English teaching class, had asked them to stop teaching English and that they should be teaching French because they're in France and they're going to stay in France. And so I can't, you know, I can't say whether that actually happened or not, but that's the story that was relayed to us and, and that I think is important to share in any case. Okay. Um, after after we spoke to the Oroma leader, uh, we we bumped into um, into a group of, of Oroma teenagers and young men who were sitting under a tarp tent, and they had just started a fire because the the sun was setting and it was raining quite heavily outside. And they invited us in, and so we sat with them. They made very strong, very sweet coffee with a lot of milk uh, that they served in in plastic cups. Um, but they made the way they heated up was in carton bricks of milk that said in French, I love the milk from here, so I love local French milk. And so it was funny to, to you know, to see people drinking from that and or making it in there. Uh, so, you know, we shared a hot coffee and um, and some more chips we had a, that the volunteer had in her bag. And, uh, and there they started talking a bit more. We stayed there for several hours with also our, um, our Afghan translator who was who had been a refugee and was now working with the NGO. He stuck around with us wherever we went um, because otherwise we would have been two girls. And we still, you know, while we were safe at all times, we still felt that we should have um, a man accompanying us. And uh, it made things easier when we were walking around on camp early, uh, later on at night. Um, so while we sat there, she asked them some questions about... Um, generally same thing interactions with the police with um, medical staff if they had to call any and um, and some a couple of the the most violent stories were that I was told were you know were told that night and one was that 
the police had broken the teeth of a refugee, had literally punched him, and and you know the people, the person who was telling the story, he was telling us, what do you, what do you do in this case? Who do you get help from? Uh, he hits you, then he goes, and and how do you tell other people you don't know any office here that you can talk to? So again, there's definitely a, l- a lack of of governmental structure. There's no there's no one to call for help, and and they don't know the French language, and most of them can't address anyone in, in French or in English. Um, then they brought up again the fact that the home office had rejected many Oromos from, you know, from seeking asylum or obtaining asylum. They felt that children were at risk, that United Nations support was not sufficient, and, and that Oromo leaders had to care on their own for their own community. The second story I heard that, that made me cringe was, um, a guy who, uh, a boy who was there and probably early 20s, he had stitches on his hand, um, on the outside of his hand, and um, and he told us he that he had broken his hand and several fingers um, when the police had chased him one night and they had pepper sprayed him and, and a bunch of other people that, and he's actually uh, the boy whose brother's teeth were punched in and broken, and he said he literally ran away from a police officer and tried to to climb on a on a chain link fence and when he was pulled back by the police officer his hand was just completely destroyed by the fence and that it had simply been stapled back um, and and one of the saddest things that you know that he said to me to us that night was that they and he meant the police they think we're animals they paper spray at us and, and they laugh at us when we're on the floor and we're hurt and um, and I think that was the most difficult point for me in that in the time that I was there. Something else they said was they can't live in their own country. I mean, it's not they're not migrants. They're again they're refugees. And and what one of them said was um, an interesting question. He asked us what is different between our country, Eritrea, and Europe. Nothing. And he said that in such a matter-of-fact way, because at that point in time, it was true. There's nothing different from them. They fled a war-torn country, or they fled they fled a, a place where they're in danger at all time, and, and they come to a refugee camp in France, and, and they're also in danger at all times, and they're no more represented or heard than they were back in Eritrea. The third day was the only time I was on camp at night. Um, I think we left around 9.30 or 10 in the evening. The interview just lasted long, and we were having a, you know, a touching moment with with the men we were interviewing. So we we didn't want to to leave too early, um, and having you know having our Afghan interpreter with us was uh, made us feel safer when we left. But um, when we came out of the sort of the Oromo part of camp, uh, there was the main road where where the containers are in the um, the government facility. And there were just a lot of people outside, a lot of agitation. Um, there was light from just, you know, the fires that people light during the day, but then at night it's your only source of light. And, and you know, it does build a certain atmosphere. A lot of yelling, and, and you don't know if it's, you know, if it's people playing around or if it's people getting into fights. It's kind of hard. And, and I was definitely influenced by just by stories people had told me and by reading the news and by being repeatedly told not to be there at night or, you know, and not being allowed to walk, or not allowed, but, you know, the volunteers never left me alone during the day, or they always walked me outside of the camp. Sometimes I came in early on my own, but I had a meeting point, and I knew where I was going, and I was never, you know, I was never left to my own devices, and that was just a simple safety measure to, to guarantee that nothing happened to any of us. Um, but so we, you know, we walked on the on the road back to, to the volunteer's car, because she, my car was parked on the other side of camp, so she would even I would walk with her to her car, and then she would drive me to my car, wait till I was in my car, and, and we would both drive off. And and I think that kind of, you know, in and of itself tells you a lot about about life on the camp and what might have happened in the past that I didn't witness, but uh, but there were very likely incidents um, where volunteers were were also attacked. So we, you know, we just left the camp hurriedly. We walked straight forward and didn't look at anyone, didn't talk to anyone. And as we walked out, there were a lot of um, a lot of just containers on the road. I think they're trash containers or just metal containers that were 
left and they must have belonged to the city before and they had a lot of um, a lot of graffiti on them and one of them said humans after all exclamation point um, another one had something about the UK a lot of them had things about the UK you know as in we just all we want is to go to the UK and and that adds definitely to to the atmosphere while you're there there's a lot of just visual stimuli all the time but um, that was that was the end of that night I mean we, we walked to the car and nothing happened we went home well so so the reason the reason that, that, I, that I'm kind of insisting on the on the, the violence and insecurity aspect of it is that just to just to understand the, the nature of the spot that we're dealing with here um, I, have a, I have a quote right here from a, a man by the name of Christian Salome who works for a French NGO that's called uh, Auberge des Migrants. Yeah, they're very present on the camp. Very present on the camp, and he said, and, and he says this must be one of the worst refugee camps in the world. Even in African camps, they have water and toilets. Um, day four was my last full day <clears throat> on and around the camp, uh, mostly around the camp, <laughs> because it was uh, Monday, and that was the day the dismantling began. So I got there early enough in the morning, but I already knew that if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have uh, an accredited press pass or um, an official NGO card, I, I wouldn't be able to enter. And um, and I just, um, so I, pre I prepared for that and I parked in a different place because my car got towed when I parked at the entrance of the camp <laughs> the night before. Yeah, they towed all the cars of people like journalists and volunteers who usually parked at the same spot. So, uh, go figure. Next day, I parked super far away and I decided to walk for a half hour, so just to make sure my car isn't taken. And um, <laughs> and I go to, um, to to the entrance of the camp that's closer to closest to the containers uh, because I figured the the usual entrance is probably just packed with people and they're not letting one in, anyone in. Um, and I happened to I happened to find some of the volunteers from from the refugee youth service who are stuck outside the camp because they didn't get their uh, their passes on time and so some of the people are on the camp and others are stuck outside so we're just waiting basically and, and you know waiting for calls from from people from the NGO and and seeing what we can do for them um, but a lot of yeah a lot of that morning was spent doing back and forth um, around the camp um, I there were CRS trucks just everywhere, even in the no man's land that surrounded the camp, and they were tracking who was coming in and out. And um, some refugees came out, and there were volunteers outside handing them water bottles and food for for their trip, I guess, their trip to we don't know where, because I'm sure some of them didn't know where they were heading. Um, and, and on the other side of the camp, at the regular entrance, um, they were boarding people on buses. I didn't manage to go there because of the roadblock uh, by the police. Uh, but I was I was told by other journalists and and NGO volunteers that they had brought in 16 buses to uh, take people people to CAOs to the other registration facilities and and camps elsewhere in France. Um, so most I mean part of the camp was evacuated that day and and that would keep going on for several days um, past you know way after I was back in Boston. <clears throat> What I didn't get to witness, but heard a lot about and read on the news about, was uh, the over over fifteen hundred people who were still by the camp after the camp had been dismantled, you know, dismantled, demolished, whatever you want to call it, and and a lot of them were children. Actually, a lot of them were unaccompanied minors that the refugee youth service and other NGOs such as Utopia Fifty Six were were working with, and um, and there was definitely, I mean. I can't imagine the, the distress everybody must have been in on the camp uh, or around the camp. I know some NGOs paid for hotel rooms for people to stay in um, because kids were literally sleeping on the street because there was no more camp to, to be on. Um, there, was also, there were also fires that day. Well, the day I was still there, there were fires on camp because people, and I'm saying people because I, I wouldn't know if it was refugees or CRS or just a confluence of everyone uh, burning things down, but some places were definitely burnt down and you could see the fires from the road where I was standing which was several kilometers away from the camp um, otherwise I don't know I you know I, I stood there a lot and talked to people a lot we all 
just shared information and try to be in touch with the people in camp. The, the NGO had anticipated that it would be hard to communicate by phone on the last day, so they had bought walkie-talkies to interact with, with members of, of the team and, and to keep in touch with um, NGO members that were stuck outside of the camp. So we did, uh, you know, the, one of the volunteers was driving kids to the hospital and back when they needed um, hospital checks because some of them, some of them had been injured. And um, actually, one of the one of the teenagers was injured a, one or two days earlier when I was there, um, and he was hurt while waiting in line for registration, and his leg was bleeding. And we had, you know, he was walking around in in shorts and flip flops, and a lot of people were actually. That's one of the things that that surprised me, or I mean, that you kind of expect, but then it only hits you when you see it. Is that it's raining, and I'm wearing hiking boots and three layers of t-shirt, sweater, and coat, and some of the kids are wearing just denim shorts and flip-flops because that's all they have. And and so it's easy for them to get injured. I mean, it's it's a muddy terrain. It's not, you know, a paved road or anything and and you're you're literally, I mean, it, it yeah. It's shocking. Um what else? And basically your your fourth day you're just observing the Yeah, the the fourth day was just a lot of observing and 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 feeling powerless, but also knowing that it's not about me and it's not about what I can do. It's, you know, about whatever can be done and whoever can do it and that's the best we can do collectively. Mm-hmm. And um and you know, I was there as an observer, so I had to to stick to my role and and that was very difficult. Um I, you know, I'm not an NGO worker. I am not a qualified um teacher or medic or or anything for that matter but I did you know I was able to help a little with interpreting and translating and and I think that's that's all I could have done and that's all I mean I I did what I could um but it was it was definitely important for me to see that and and I think it's important for me to talk about it with people I know and people who are interested in the topic people who study that topic people who don't study the topic but who want to help out in any way they can um because I am I don't think shocked explains what I'm feeling enough, but I'm I'm so very disappointed that that you know that the French authorities were not able to assess the needs of the people on camp better and and you know to provide what was needed for them to have a safe transition to new facilities and to guarantee that everybody was evacuated at the same time or within a set time frame and that nobody was left alone. Nobody was left behind, and and unfortunately, it's not the way it happened. I just want to know what your you know, your parting thoughts were, and your and the kind of conclusions that you drew personally, and then politically, socially, culturally, and you know, whatever is really salient in your mind about your experience there, and that you really drew from, and that you that you think uh, is is going to move you forward. I think coming back from Calais and getting back into the project with FMHT with designing a way of communication for for the NGOs and and the unaccompanied minors I I understood better how difficult it is when you're working on a camp like this to think beyond a day-to-day basis or a weekly basis the situation changes constantly um there are so many actors and factors involved and every single decision you make or every you know every single change that an NGO tries to make is always dependent on so many different people, external actors, other NGOs, the local government, um, funding, things, you know, things that are even just internal NGO politics. There are a lot of actors that come into play and that render, um, that render the results much more difficult to obtain. And I thought that having been on the ground was, was really an, really a valuable experience for me and for the class because it allows us to understand better what is needed on the camp concretely because it's always more difficult when you have an external account from someone who's busy over there and running around and dealing with a thousand things at once. Um, I think it was useful to have sort of a dedicated person and, and it could be somebody else, you know, but I I, I was the one to go and, and do that, but it was useful to have a person dedicated to thinking long term while being there and, and, you know, taking into account all the the short term decisions that have to be made and the dynamics that um, that are created on on the camp. Um, I, you know, as a as a student, as someone who's getting ready to graduate and and to work in this field, I realize how important um, 
age and gender are and how much your your degree or your credentials matter in a situation like this, how difficult it is to be heard for the refugees, but also for the NGO volunteers. Um, again, there's a hierarchy comes into play very much and, um, and it's difficult to have access to the government people that you need to actually get things done. And I think oftentimes you feel that as a volunteer or a student um, that you're that you're helpless or that you you don't have all the power that you would want to have to achieve things and although you have the ideas and the drive and the people behind you it doesn't always work um, but the other thing I learned from from watching these people do their work is is that you know there's always tomorrow to do more and um, and there's there's always going to be something to do and whatever you can do to help a little every day is already is already great um, thinking on the long term again uh, I I think policy matters a lot and uh, and research about policy, academic research and feedback from crises like that. I think the role of the media on as much as, you know, as much as people bash the media for for doing their job and, and for doing it the way they do it, I think they're important and they're the people recording what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. You're not going to have a lot of academics who are on the field for such a long period of time and who are going to do the nitty-gritty and who are going to stay in the mud and sleep in the refugee tents to get the information. So I do want to say, you know, at least one good sentence uh, about the media and, and mention that I, I support a lot of journalists' work because I think that without them we wouldn't have all the data that we get to do our more long-term background research as academics. Um, I don't know what else... Um, I, you know, I can't say how much this has affected me and how much um, it drives me now to keep doing what I'm doing um, as a student and how much I want to work in this field in the future because I think there's a lot to be done and and I, I don't, I couldn't live in the world that, that lets people sleep in the mud for, for years like that in a country that is supposed to be one of the most developed countries in the world. So on behalf of the Common Thread podcast team, we just want to thank Miranda for sharing her time, her experiences, her energy, her efforts regarding a situation that's hugely pertinent to current affairs today. It's going to affect our generation profoundly, and that's of global significance. So thank you for your time. Thank you for giving me a chance to reflect on everything I saw and experienced while I was there, and um, hopefully for opening up a new conversation on this topic. In the description of this podcast, you can find a link to Samaranda's photo website where you can view the photos she took in Calais. We hope you enjoyed this story. You can find our podcast online or on iTunes. Until the next one, we will keep looking for the common thread.